This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Mitch Goldman. Welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. I'm Mitch Goldman, Wharton Healthcare alumnus and a retired partner in the healthcare law firm and the law firm of Dwayne Morris. We're continuing our conversation this hour about accountable care organizations, ACOs. We've got two experts with us with deep knowledge about starting and running these programs. On the phone is Dennis Horrigan, the former CEO and president of, an a- of the ACO Catholic Medical Partners, and my good friend Chris Raffley, who's the co-chair of the healthcare department at uh, Cozenan O'Connor. Uh, if you'd like to join today's conversation, give us a call, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. I want to go back, and I know that Dennis wants to make a, a, a way in on, on the, the, what we were doing at the end of the break, which was focused on the platform, the startup costs, uh, and just, just what you need to be able to get off the ground. Dennis? Sure. Thanks, Mitch. So one of the questions is, is the ACO model sustainable? And how do you build the infrastructure to support an ACO and essentially what you need is you need strong uh, quality and utilization reporting, um, care management, actuarial services, contracting. Uh, you need a data warehouse and um, uh, a big investment in the electronic health record. <clears throat> Once that investment is made, and, and we we had the American Hospital Association study Catholic Medical Partners seven or eight years ago, and back then our investment was around four to five million dollars, and then that increased. <clears throat> By the time I left, it was around seven or eight million. But <clears throat> the business model right now is somewhat hamstrung by the ACO provider groups really need to get four to 500,000 members into their ACO. And that would bring in four to $5 billion of revenue. And if you can save two or 3%, that, is a, that covers your margin. I mean, that's $100 million that you could add to the bottom line and distribute not only margin to the hospital, but to the doctors. When you're investing in an ACO and you have small membership, that's the problem because the investment needs to be <clears throat> maximized through having more and more covered lives. Mm-hmm. So I, from the business perspective, scale is critical. Let me ask you this, Chris. Do you think this business model is what's driving consolidation among the hospital providers and the, and the physician providers? I think the the requirement to invest in the things that Dennis just spoke about it's not inexpensive hard to do as a you know relatively small physician practice so I think that's definitely driving some of it um as well as the fact that as Dennis mentioned it's kind of a law of insurance and this isn't too far removed from insurance risk taking the larger the pool the better actuarially you can predict. You don't get surprised. So all those principles, I think, do drive consolidation, both the, the, the investment that's needed up front as well as the scale that's ultimately needed. I will say uh, some ACOs are looking at it and finding it, it that while on a 
aggregate basis, the more the better. It's tougher to manage care of a really large, diverse population. So some ACOs that I talk to are considering and looking at maybe having kind of subdivisions or not necessarily subdivisions, but pods where you're, you're look like they say, all politics is local to a degree, all health care is local. So there there's a yin and a yang there as well as to whether bigger is better, certainly from an actuarial financial standpoint in these models. But at what point do you pull away from the ability to really coordinate care on a, on a local level where a lot of that's done? So there's a little bit of tension there. But overall, I would certainly agree with Dennis, yeah. And Dennis, how do you feel about consolidation from what you're seeing? Is that is this driving that? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I <clears throat> have the um, the benefit and the honor of working with a lot of groups around the country. And um, the um, first of all, the, the hospital systems are purchasing <clears throat> um, surgical groups and important uh, internal medicine subspecialty groups, um, you know, to capture volume. <clears throat> the um, primary care groups, you know, you have both vertical and horizontal integration going on. And then look at the health plan with CVS and Aetna, and then you have Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon. Um, you, you know, you, you have massive um, discussions going on about <clears throat> consolidation and getting more, you know, marketplace power. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and again, I, I think these are all the pieces of a, of a puzzle. I, I wanted to go back to the discussion, and I know it's in the weeds, so I, I urge both of you to, to kind of keep this as, as jargon-free as possible. We started to talk about the different models that are out there. Reference was made, and I think, Chris, I'm going to throw it back to you to kind of continue that discussion. Of, of When we talk about a model, we're really talking about what we know about what Medicare is doing and what maybe some of the commercial uh, insurers are doing, the Blues, Aetna, the, 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 the bigger players. Talk about just what those differences are and, and, and what's going on there. Yeah. The, the the government has really driven this initially, and CMS and the Medicare program, particularly with their shared savings program and then the Pioneer program for ACOs, which then turned into the Next Generation program, set up a bunch of different models. And when the Affordable Care Act came in and was finally validated by the Supreme Court, they set up something called the Center for Medicare uh, in in Medicare and Medicaid um, innovation, or Centers for Center for Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, um, and that really came in with the purpose of developing and trying out a number of reimbursement models, several in the ACO field. So you have the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is actually broken down into four different parts. One is Track 1, which is what I referred to as as an upside-only model, where you only share in the savings. It's reduced amount of sharing because you're not sharing in any risk of the downside where you have to pay money back. You had Track 2 and Track 3, which are all kind of 
on the spectrum, more advanced, more riskier models as you move forward. And more recently, they established a Track 1 Plus, which is kind of a hybrid, a mix between limited downside risk and upside uh, shared savings. So those that's the Medicare Shared Savings Program. They call that MSSP. Then there is the more advanced model, riskier model, higher potential return, up to 80 to 100 percent of you get it up to 80 of 100% of the shared savings generated but higher risk as far as if there's if there's overruns on expenses and that's the next generation model uh the the participation in the shared savings program is in the 500 i think 561 or something like that and i think most of those are still in the track 1 model that's the shared savings model which is just upside the more advanced model, the next generation ACO program is, I think, about 51 now. We just lost seven uh, in that program because of a, of a certain thing that happened at the end of last year. But that, again, is for, I guess, you would term the more advanced ACOs and and is not as popular as the program where the risk is less. Got it. Got it. Dennis, yes, let me ask you a question. I, I know I, that... Dennis, I, I wanted just to ask... Sure, go ahead. CMMI is is really leading the innovation. But there's also programs for specialists, and they're very similar to the ACL. You have the comprehensive end-stage renal, Mm -hmm. the cancer model, and now you have the bundle payment coming out in October. And there's somewhat 32 different bundles um, of episodes that are pretty much built the same way as an ACL, only it's around a specific episode of care. so th- this kind of innovation is popping up everywhere, not only with primary care doctors, but with, you know, with, with their specialty um, colleagues. <clears throat> Got it. Well, let me ask you a, a, a question that's always troubled me. You were very successful in dealing with shared savings. You've made money in shared savings. What do you hear about any of your clients who have lost money how do they deal with getting, collecting it from the doctors? Oh, that's a good question. Well, um, <clears throat> we need another hour for that discussion. <laughs> um, well, first of all, if it's a hospital-based ACO with risk and, and the majority of the doctors are employees, then the hospital really funds any deficit through their cash flow. I see. Now, if you have a hospital with some independent doctors, one of the legal questions, and I'm not a lawyer that has come up, is would the ACO, um, the individual doctors, be covered by the hospital, or would that be you know, a legal violation of safe harbors? Um, and what we essentially did to manage that is we set up a, an insurance captive um, to cover um, the potential downside risk that we had. And um, whenever we made a dollar, we took a certain percentage of that and, you know, put it into reserves because <clears throat> we really never wanted to be able to go to a small practice and ask for money back. Um, that we, we felt was <clears throat> um, would be a non-starter and would be unfair because the... the um, 
we, ju we just didn't have the predictability in the early stages of how this was going to turn out. You, you know, you, you need a couple of years of experience to see how this is going to work out. And <clears throat> when you look at the, the ACL results, only one in three ACLs that are young in the first couple of years receive savings. And, you know, they save two or three percent, nothing like the 20 percent that I mentioned before. But the more mature next gen, um, I think more than 60% of them <clears throat> um, achieve savings, and some of them had to pay money back as well. So, you know, it, you know, it's it's complicated, and it it has risk. But if you use good science, good medical management, if you had good data and analytics, good communication, you know, you can. You can minimize your risk, and, and, and you can um, uh, achieve savings. We, when for the 10 years at Catholic Medical Partners, with our commercial plans, we always had surpluses, slight surpluses um, in those arrangements. Chris, you want to comment? Yeah, I think what Dennis is referring to as far as the legal barriers is there's a federal law that says you can't pay uh, anybody for including hospitals to physicians, cannot pay anything of value to physicians for referrals. So some it, it could be construed that, you know, taking on risk uh, and protecting physicians from the downside risk is providing something of value who those physicians would then, as a, their normal course, would refer patients to the hospital. So there, there's a couple ways to deal with it. The Under the Shared Savings Program, and I, I believe NextGen as well, there's some waivers that CMS promulgated that uh, allow ACOs to do some things that would would basically say those laws are waived uh, with respect to the, the anti-referral laws are waived with respect to things done within the ACO program. That just shows what type of priority uh, that the government is putting on these programs. These, these um, anti-referral laws, the anti-kickback statute, and Stark as well, have really been the focus uh, of, of kind of enforcement and compliance in the hospital world for a long time. But the government did say, you know, the importance and the priority of this program, in some situations, we're going to put those concerns aside because we realize, you know, as long as it's not a blatant kind of kickback that uh, around some of the, the gray areas, we can let that happen because the greater good is to promote this care coordination and the things you do as an ACO. Got it. Got it. For those of you just joining in, you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius X1, XM 111. I'm Mitch Goldman. I'm joined by with, with Dennis Horrigan, the former CEO and president of Catholic Medical Partners, and Chris Raffley, who's the co-chair of the Health, Health Law Department at Cozen and O'Connor. We're, we're talking about some of the complex issues around ACOs, and the, the question that I had asked is, well, how do, you, how do you collect money from physicians when you lose money? And uh, Chris was just finishing up an, a comment around the, the fact that there's an opportunity to avoid uh, implicating Stark or any kickback because of, of the way the, uh, some of the waivers uh, exist in the ACO group. My, my question, the, the other question that's always kind of keeps coming up all the time, we have the different models, two-sided, one-sided, upside, you know, profits versus sharing profits or savings versus sharing losses. Um, the next generation uh, ACO continues to come up as, a, as, as something that's an improvement over 
But but I think was this the one where the seven ACOs dropped out, or was that over something else, Chris? Well, they, there there were there were fifty eight. The program has actually I think went from seventeen or fourteen to fifty eight in a matter of a couple of years. So it's been, it's gotten more popular. And as Dennis, Dennis mentioned, as you develop as an ACO, you become more mature. You may be willing to move into that more risky model. But I think what happened, and again, these are very sensitive calculations, as I'm sure Dennis can attest, as to whether you make money, lose money, or how much you lose or you make. And what happened is in December of last year, there's something uh, they they do risk adjustment for all these populations, which means you know every population isn't equal. Some are more risky uh, as far as financially, as far as they have more acute levels of certain types of illness, and they they're just a more expensive population. So you try to adjust among the ACOs so it's really an even playing field. Well, they changed that risk uh, adjustment method unilaterally, but they gave the ACOs the option to opt out uh, this year based on that risk adjustment because it was not told to them when they got into the program that they were going to do it. And seven opted out. I think three or four uh, went on record that opted out that said, you know, we did it because of that rule. Others didn't say either way. And it's possible that some saw that maybe they weren't doing as well as they thought midway through and they used the advantage to get out. I don't know. But, you know, it was a Given the expansion we've had in that program, I don't see that as a – I've seen some of the write-ups on it as if it's a kind of an exodus from the program. I think it was a little bit of a pullback, but, you know, there was a change in the program as well that might, you know, bend the actual reason and a valid reason to not move forward in the program. Yeah. So, Dennis, you want to comment? Risk adjustment is absolutely critical. and How so? And, How so? Why is it critical? Well, because if, if – if you're um, a patient with, say, diabetes, with no complications, your historical cost um, is going to be much lower than if you're a diabetic and you've had an amputation, you've had retinal problems or cardiac problems. And if the doctors don't code the complications that a patient has during the visit, and I mean all the complications. Sometimes if a person with diabetes goes in and they have a cold or um, the flu, the, the doctor will treat that and just create diabetes with influenza. But <clears throat> if, if they're considering the heart disease, maybe the peripheral vascular disease, the ophthalmology issues, then those codes need to be put on the claims so they can be picked up so there's proper risk adjustment. Got it. And, and they, um, some of the doctors that I work with have said to me, Dennis, I'm spending more time coding um, than actually talking to patients. And um, there, there's actually companies that go in and um, they review the historical claims of patients, and if they don't see those same diagnoses pop up during the performance year, they actually can do adjustments to ensure that there's proper risk adjustment. This is a big issue for the health plans and for ACOs. And part of the debate that's going on is 
have the patients really gotten sicker or are we just documenting better where we weren't before? And that's really the debate. And I think that was the impetus of the change where, you know, we may not really be looking at a sicker, sicker population. We're just looking at a more documented population. And ultimately, they want to tie it to the acuity of the population, not the just the ability to, to code better. Although that's an important piece as well. Yeah. Good. Dennis, let me ask you a question. Let's just switch gears for a second and kind of look at the future for a minute. Uh, if you had to look out five years from now, what, what are we going to be seeing as an ACO, ACO model? Still around? Uh, I, I think, um, you know, when, um, <clears throat> when I visited CMS and when I talked to the people at CMMI, they view integrated healthcare as being the solution to the healthcare cost problem. And if you go back, um, I actually was involved in the HMO movement. That was supposed to basically, um, you know, take care of the healthcare crisis. And um, you know, it it's it had a bumpy time. And I think now the government is basically saying we want the doctors and hospitals and nurses to take responsibility for, um, you know, better care at lower cost. And I think this is just going to continue. And, um, you know, the, the government is not providing fee increases to anyone. If you look at MACRA, you know, you've got to earn additional increases in payments. And, and MACRA is what? It, that, that's the replacement for um, the sustainable growth rate. It's, the, um, it's a Medicare Reconciliation Act that basically brought value-based payment um, forward to the doctors. It, it basically replaced the PQRS program, which was a, a physician quality reporting program. Um, Macro is a whole other topic. Right. It's a tol- it, it was the doc fix. It was yeah. figuring yeah. out how to cut medic, uh, physician fees, and the yeah. con- Congress never had the courage to do it, so they kept kicking it down the road. Mm-hmm. We'll but come it, back and deal with that on a yeah. totally different, different basis. Yeah. But go as, ahead. I didn't mean as, to interrupt you. As consolidation takes place, what's happening is doctors and hospitals come together. They get put on one computer system. <clears throat> then they have better information. Uh, they, they create economies of scale. They grab more volume. They, they become, if, part of the ACL movement is if you drive more volume into your ACO through in-network referrals and your quality is high, then this is a strategic advantage that you're providing. And once the public sees that ACO number one is driving down cost without impacting quality or access, then, you know, there's marketplace advantage for those systems. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, look, that's where the vision really has to be, right? It's yeah. on getting consumers more information, being transparent around costs. And I just don't hear that being discussed in the ACO. And I, I don't want to – we're coming close to the end of the show, and I don't really want to digress. Chris, did you want to comment on the future issues? Yeah, I, I agree with Dennis. I think the, the platform as a platform, for lack of a better term, I see as a long-term you know, that's that's here to stay. There's going to be some variations, but I see, you know, the coordination across 
financially integrated and non-financially integrated providers. That would that has been stabbed that facet that's been established by the ACOs is here to stay. I do think how they're paid is going to change. I think you're going to see, and who backs them is going to change as well. I think you're going to see more partners, partnerships within with insurance companies offering insurance products based on an ACO. And some of that is going to be just what Dennis talked about, is ACOs get better in showing and proving their value. And we can see, like the, the ACO Dennis ran, that some do well year after year. But I think we're going to have more robust data on who does well and why, and that's going to be a marketplace advantage. And that could be used to go to the public, but it could also be go, used to go to commercial insurers, Medicare Advantage insurers, Medicaid plans. You're going to see it play out kind of in a both a consumer context and a B2B context, if you will. So I think that's where it's going. I do think the reimbursement model will change, but I think that idea of the ACO as a platform to coordinate care and deliver more efficient care is, is here to stay. And do you have a clue as to where that reimbursement change is likely to be? Well, I think you're going to see more, I, I would guess, and we're not seeing it as much, but I think you'll see more kind of joint ventures with insurance products. So they'll be actually offering insurance product, and you won't just be sharing in the savings. You'll be sharing in the in the which to some degree is the same thing, but not entirely. You'll be sharing in the success of the insurance product, which has more than just the spend. You have to market an insurance product. You have to it, it has to be sold. It has to be run right. So there's it's a insurance is a bigger world than just the spend. Although obviously the medical spend is a huge piece of it. Good, Dennis. You got Dennis. You got Dennis. You got thirty seconds. Yeah, the um, United Healthcare bought the Vita. So they bought. A physician group. So that's an indication that the health plans are looking to integrate with the providers. And there are large provider groups that have their own insurance vehicles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, there's integration going on, you know, from every vantage point. And we're seeing it in other parts of the country, not necessarily here as much, but a lot of private money's flowing into setting up these things that aren't, you know, even private equity and different private funding, which which has some of its own hurdles when you get to relationships with physicians and all that. But I think you're seeing some of that come in as well. Well, that's it's interesting to say. I I I, I just want to say one thing. It, unfortunately, it's all the time we have. We could go on for quite some time. The reimbursement issues are always interesting. I want to thank our guest today, Dennis Horrigan, former Catholic Medical Partners, former CEO of Catholic Medical Partners, and our two attorneys, Chris Raffley and uh, Greg Brodick, who uh, had some good comments as well. Uh, I can only say this. When we, when we come back next time, we'll be talking about some similar issues, and uh, I want to be certain that, we, that our listeners keep up with each of the guests we've had, and uh, I'd like to just thank Brian Drew and sound engineer Dion Simpkins for putting on today's show. This show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more. You can re read more about your sh our shows uh, on. Uh, you can hear about them on Sirius XM Business Radio. You've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. I'm Mitch Goldman. Thanks for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.